The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, you'll hear a new interview with Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech, trading as ONC on the TSX and ONCY on the OTCQX. Brad and I will discuss the probability that cancer will become an affliction of the past as we near a cure. You'll hear from Noblest Health trading in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. I'll visit with the raving capitalist, Paul Blagenovic, and we'll catch up on commodities, markets, geopolitics, and more. And let's begin the program with a look at lithium. I recently met with the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, Robert Mintak, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE, and the U.S. as HMGLF. Pure Energy recently signed an agreement with Tesla Motors to potentially provide lithium hydroxide to the nearby Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada. Let's go. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Robert Mintek, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. on the OTC as HMGLF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 8,000-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices and hybrid electric vehicles. Pure Energy Minerals recently announced that the company has entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, Give us some background on your company, if you don't mind. Pure Energy Minerals. We're considered a mining company because we have a mineral resource that we're working to build a project around, but we're more actually an evolving company from mining to specialty chemicals and clean energy. Our project's based on is a lithium brine resource in Nevada. Uh, And lithium brine is the mineral resource that's used to extract lithium to create lithium materials for electric car batteries. So the mining process, well, it's a mining, it actually is more of a specialty chemical company because you're taking lithium out of the ground in its natural state in a, in a brine in water, and you're converting it into a very high-quality specialty battery material. That separates you more or less from most mining companies right now. You are more or less a quasi-tech company in that your offtake ultimately will go to the production of batteries for automobiles 
automobiles, and that sector is growing. Yeah, correct. If you look at the current lithium producers, none of them would be considered mining companies. They're all considered specialty chemical companies. The lithium in the world is produced primarily right now, about 90% of it, from four companies. And those incumbent companies have held market control for decades. Originally and continually still, lithium and the production methods that were used to produce lithium materials came from 20th century technologies. Lithium demand in 2015 and moving forward, demand is increasing for high-tech materials for batteries. The incumbent producers have to have a number of steps to upgrade the lithium that they produce into battery material. But new companies like Pure Energy were focused on taking that mining concept and evolving it into a technology company which produces high-quality battery materials for clean tech like electric cars or grid storage and using new technologies that eliminate all of the 20th century conventional mining techniques. So when you're supplying electric cars with lithium, currently it's quite an ugly supply chain. So you're producing lithium from either brine, and brine, which is the resource we have in Nevada, brine is salty water that exists in an aquifer below the ground. Most of the world's lithium is produced in South America from brine projects, and they use massive solar evaporation ponds that are five to 10,000 acres, a huge environmental footprint. They are very inefficient with very low recovery rates. So when you look at the supply chain for a, an electric car, and you're trying to philosophically align the purchase potentially, if that's the overriding philosophy for adopting electric cars, is to to reduce the environmental impact of the vehicles. The supply chain is a key component of that. So currently, lithium is, I wouldn't call it a dirty mineral, but I wouldn't call it a clean one. And the technologies that we're looking at deploying on our project in Nevada eliminate a lot of that environmental footprint. Really the part of the clean tech story that we are building on right now. Well, what I've learned about lithium specifically in that quote-unquote space is that these evaporation ponds are problematic and no one likes them. And if that's in the composite of your company, chances are you're not going to have that much success when you go to produce the minerals and send them to offtake. But this is not a situation with regard to your company, is it? No. Our companies went public in 2013. The resource that we are looking to extract lithium from is in Nevada. It's adjacent to the only producing lithium mine in North America, in Silver Peak, Nevada. It's owned by a company called Albemarle Specialty Chemicals. They use the evaporation pond model. They have roughly three to 4,000 acres of evaporation ponds. They were permitted in 1966. If you drive into Silver Peak, it's not pleasant to see. And Environmental oversight was not where it is today in 1966. There's no way you would ever have a project permitted. When we took the project on, we knew this permitting would be a challenge. Evaporation ponds work in deserts with high evaporation rates. That happens to be where lithium is found in Chile and Argentina, the major producers of lithium, and in Nevada. Evaporation ponds were great for the time, but they're highly inefficient and they're detrimental to the water table. So unfortunately, even though there's a lithium resource there and you have the evaporation evaporation opportunity with solar evaporation, it's very detrimental to the fresh water, and fresh water in a desert is one of the most important things. So when we took the project on, we knew those fatal flaws, they didn't align with the way we wanted to build the project. We were very fortunate in that the focus on electric vehicles and grid storage has not just 
aligned with our belief that we can change the way lithium and mining is done for clean energy projects, but there's other technology partners that we're working with around the world that we're on the same train of thought. And they're developing technologies that will be soon to be commercialized, not just hopefully on our project, but in other projects around the world that eliminate the environmental footprint that lithium currently has when you're producing materials for batteries. And those are coming to market coincidentally in time with what we believe will be the adoption of electric vehicles. So you can begin to erase the dirty raw material supply that a lot of people assign to electric cars and the way materials for them are built. Now, I know that the state of Nevada is very aggressive in attracting industry, industry like the space that you're involved in, and I know that recently they won Tesla as a a place to host their battery production asset. How do you figure into that equation? When Pure Energy was looking at lithium projects around the world to find an asset, we originally we identified lithium brine, so lithium in solution, as the lowest cost producer, because most of the world's lithium is produced from brine, currently from evaporation ponds. And unfortunately, most of the lithium resources in the world are in jurisdictions that can be politically challenging in South America, in Chile and Argentina. The only producing mine for lithium is in Nevada, and it's in Clayton Valley. So we circled the world and the circle got smaller, and we chose a project in Nevada in 2013. It was before the Gigafactory announcement. So the Gigafactory announcement from Tesla really added wind to our sales and helped not just our project, but it added a lot of attention to the lithium space. Our specific zip code in Nevada and being a lithium brine project also helped over the 2014-2015 timeframe as we've been developing our project. It drew a lot of attention to our project, and we're one of two companies that have signed conditional supply agreements with Tesla for the Gigafactory. There's a project in Mexico that has signed the supply agreement, and Pure Energy is the only other company that has signed one. Our project is strategically located just three and a half hours away from Sparks, where they're building the Gigafactory. So we were very fortunate in getting in at the right time before all of the attention that was brought to Nevada because of the uh, Gigafactory. But our belief in the project coincided with the choice for Nevada, because Nevada is one of the greatest jurisdictions to do business in the world. Pure Energy is a Vancouver-based company, and our team has built projects around the world, including in Canada, and it can be a jurisdictional nightmare to permit. Nevada, we've had amazing support from the state. At every instance when we've required assistance or support. The governor's office in Nevada and the local Esmeralda County where our project is has been very vocal on their support and interest in seeing our project move forward. Now, when you go to your website, there is a video about a pilot plant in Israel that you are going to be using to test, I'm assuming, the minerals for purity. Yeah. One of the unique benefits that Pure Energy has, and we've been able to nurture relationships. We're a small startup company. If you look at our website, we've got a very good board of directors with experience on mining projects around the world, and our management team has experience on project developments, taking them from conception to production. Lithium projects are challenging in that it's taking a mineral from a resource based in water and turning it into a a high-purity battery material, which could, for some companies, entail millions of dollars of investment in R&D. We're fortunate that we're working with two of the world's leading technologies for lithium processing. The pilot plant you're speaking of in Israel is owned by a company called Tenova Bateman. It's a multi-billion dollar mining equipment supplier who specializes in solvent extraction. And they have a technology that replaces evaporation ponds using a solvent extraction process where you pump brine into the plant, a lithium-specific solvent is used to strip the lithium from the brine 
the brine is scrubbed and re-injected into the aquifer. It's a real simple diagram of building. It's more complex than that. But we've booked their pilot plant to begin process testing brine from our project in Nevada. And what this enables us at a very low cost to our investors and with an extremely experienced research team in Israel is to leapfrog other projects in the world that are looking to bring resources to market. The Bateman facility is a state-of-the-art facility in Israel, and the mini pilot plant work we're doing this Q1 of 2016 will allow us what we believe and Bateman believes to show operating and capital costs that will be amongst the world's best for producing the battery materials that companies like Tesla and other battery companies are after. So Tesla ultimately is not going to be your only potential client. Our intention is to be able to produce different lithium chemistries at the same facility. So pumping raw brine into the facility and producing lithium hydroxide, that's what our contract with Tesla is for, but also be able to produce lithium carbonate or other high-purity battery materials depending on what the customer needs. And being able to specially tailor those materials would make us unique in the world. Most of the lithium supply in the world is produced and converted either into a lithium carbonate, not at battery grade, or a lithium concentrate, and then shipped from its source in South America or Australia or China to a final polishing or chemical processing plant. The technologies we're looking to deploy in Nevada eliminate all of that gap between production and final purity materials. So having more than one customer will allow us, when we can make it into production, to have much more control on our margins and have the availability to be unique in the marketplace. And you've nearly uh, zeroed your transportation costs. You can literally walk the product across the street, can't you? Yeah, in Nevada, with the Gigafactory and Sparks, it's about a four-hour drive. Nevada's really becoming a hub for clean tech. Everyone thinks of Las Vegas and gaming in Nevada, but Nevada's diversifying its economy. Just today, the state of Nevada announced a billion-dollar electric car company moving into North Las Vegas, Faraday. There's other battery companies in Nevada that nobody talks about. K2 Energy has a battery factory in Henderson, Nevada. So the economy in Nevada is is evolving, but potential production from our project were ideally located as well for exporting. We're only six hours to the port of Los Angeles. You've got to have a large resource to engage in all the projects that you have in mind. Uh, Let's talk about the asset on the ground. What attracted us to Clayton Valley, where our project is, is that there's an existing producer there. So lithium brine being a water resource, we are quite confident that with our project being directly adjacent to the current producer, we would have success in exploration and drilling and having a similar chemistry to the brine that they're currently producing from. So in 2014 and 2015, we did exploration drilling work and extensive seismic reflection work, and that allowed us to produce the only 43101 inferred resource on a lithium brine project in North America to date. So for the people who don't know what a 43101 is, we're a Toronto Stock Exchange venture listed company and a Canadian mining company needs to follow certain protocols on reporting and technical reports on resources. So the 43101 is the designation given to a report written by a third party qualified person. So the exploration work we did in 2014 2015 allowed the publication of a 43101 with a inferred resource of 816,000 tons lithium carbonate equivalent. Lithium carbonate equivalent, or LCE, is used as a benchmark for identifying lithium resources or lithium reserves. And that number really got attention from a lot of people because it showed that Nevada has a real opportunity and that as we build from the inferred resource to move to indicated resource and feasibility and we we build on that with further exploration programs and that number becomes more de-risked, 
it shows the potential for a very large and long life mining, especially chemical process company to be established. How are you finance going forward? We're actually in a very fortunate position. If you follow mining stocks, you'll find that most companies right now are struggling to raise attention or have any one give them any money. The lithium space is one of the few attractive spots in the mining sector right now. And we've been fortunate over the last year and a half that our stock price has been very strong. In 2014, we raised just under $4 million, which allowed us to bring our 43101 into publication. And it allowed us to do some preliminary bench scale work in Israel with Tanova Bateman and acquire additional land package. Our land package right now is just over 9,000 acres in Clayton Valley. With the strong share price that we have now, our $3.8 million financing that was done in 2014 came along with warrants. So all the warrants that are attached to that, those financings are in the money. We have about, today's date, between $1.5 and $1.6 million in the bank, and we have around just over $3 million in warrants that are in the money, and we're receiving warrants being executed weekly. Those warrants expire, a large portion of them, in June 2016. The exploration program we're doing right now in Clayton Valley, we anticipate to close sometime in early Q1 2016. It's fully financed. And to get to the work for the PEA, as long as we receive the warrants that we expect, that program's fully financed as well. So we're in a unique position where most companies are out looking for money. Our shareholders have been very strong. We have an opportunity to be non-dilutive right now. Let's talk about that share structure for a minute. I know you're trading somewhere around 47 cents Canadian. The offerings we did in 2014 were at 10 cents and 20 cents. So we're trading around 47. I believe our year high was close to a dollar around the announcement that we made in September with Tesla. We have very high volume trading, so we're a very liquid stock, but we believe the next value milestones that we're looking to establish will build upon that. We believe that as we move through this exploration program and produce the next 43101 on the reserve and move through pilot plant work with Tonova this Q1 2016 and produce a PEA, Preliminary Economic Assessment, in 2016. We believe those are significant milestones which I believe will enhance our share value. That's our intention is to build value with these milestones. So we think that there's significant opportunities in the very near future. Fantastic. Anything you can talk about coming down the pike about 12 months out? Well, the significant ones, as I had just mentioned, were the exploration program that's ongoing now with drilling in Nevada. Our work is to try to grow the inferred resource report that we've published. And then the work that's being done in Israel at a mini pilot plant with Tonova Bateman, publication of the OPEX and CAPEX numbers from that, we believe will be significant attention getters. My work with Sonova and my experience with them and their success on other minerals using solvent extraction has always been, if you look at their storied history, they've always been able to succeed at what they put in front of them. Our work with them with lithium, we believe will reflect a similar outcome. If you don't mind, a quick overview of your board of directors and yourself. I'm the CEO of the company. My background isn't in mining. It's in brick and mortar operations and ensuring that balance sheets maintain transparency and projects stay on budget. I've also, over the last four years, been fortunate to develop a very extensive network in the lithium space with C-level connections at some of the largest companies in Asia and with technology processors like Tenova. Our management team is world-class. We're a small startup company partnered with multi-billion dollar companies, which help, we believe, towards building a successful project. Our COO, Andy Robinson, is a PhD geochemist, hydrogeologist. He's taken projects around the world, water projects, because we have a water project, from conception into production. Our VP of Business Development, Alexei Zawadsky, is a trained hydrologist, water expert as well, who's built clean energy projects 
around the world. Patrick Highsmith is a director who just joined Pure Energy just last month, is a geochemist as well with a success record in the lithium space. He was the CEO and COO of Lithium One, one of the few success stories in the first lithium bubble that started in 2009. He developed the Sol de Vida project in Argentina and successfully sold that to Galaxy Resources for $112 million in 2012. We also have the world's foremost ranking expert on continental brines, Professor Leanne Monk from the University of Alaska. She's the go-to person for the USGS on anything to do with lithium brine in the world. She's our technical advisor on the project. We also have a very stellar board of directors. One of our board of directors, Mary Little, sits on the board of directors for Sandstorm Gold, New York Stock Exchange listed company, and Bob Cross, also one of our advisors. He's the chairman of B2 Gold and Bankers Petroleum, both New York Stock Exchange. Well, Robert, it's been a great pleasure learning about your company today. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. I really appreciate being on here. And aside from an investment opportunity, it's a very fun project to watch because we're trying to build something that is, if successful, will change the way materials for electric vehicles are made. I've been speaking with Robert Mintak, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. on the OTC as HMGLF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. How closer are we to finding a cure for cancer than we were five years ago? The last five years have been the most exciting from a development perspective time for working in the cancer field. I think if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said you know, 20 to 30 years. I think we are certainly within my generation of actually coming up with an effective group of therapies for most or all cancers. It's an amazing thing to be able to say that out loud. So we'll be able to say at some point in the future, cancer has been cured much like polio has been, correct? Exactly. I'm actually very comfortable saying that now. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to say out loud. It's just been such a change in the entire area and the perspective. And, and it's almost like every day there's a new advance and a different cancer coming out. I think that's the trajectory we're on. I think we're going to be able to actually say that and not just hope for it. The cure for cancer in the future, I think we're not that far away from being able to say, at least to, to some patients or many patients, I think we can make it better. That's just really quite nice. Well, I know you've been through it when you hear the words from the physician. We've seen some evidence of possible cancer. If you've heard that from your doctor, it may not be the death blow that anybody's been experiencing in the past. Absolutely. I mean, there's some of the childhood leukemias when a generation ago or two generations ago were, you know, I mean, they were death sentences. And now we have 80, 85, 90% cure rate. I mean, it's a complete turnaround with some of these cancers. And we're just trying to, as an industry and as a medical community, trying to spread that to other cancers as well. And, and we're trying to see some real major advances. I mean, melanoma is a good example. You know, when I got it, and that wasn't that long ago, it was a real concern. Everybody was really concerned. It wasn't just a few patients. And now it's a much bigger subset of patients that actually have a pretty good, oh, I'm never going to get this again prognosis if you get it early. It's just a complete change. 
and it's so nice. But we want to be able to do that with all cancers. We want to be able to say, well, okay, you got pancreatic cancer, not everybody in the office go, <gasps> no, that's where we'd like to be going. I mean, there's some cancers that are still extremely serious and have very poor prognosis. What kind of prevention can we undergo? So many times people are caught in stage three or stage four cancer and maybe too late. So uh, what are we not doing as a society to take care of early detection? Diagnosis can make the biggest difference. I mean, if you get a person at an earlier stage of cancer, the chances of them having a good outcome go up exponentially. It is such a difference. A lot of it is the spread of self-awareness. The internet is such a powerful tool for people to actually be able to say there's something wrong and have some content behind it. That's the first part. But I mean, a lot of the cancers, it's just the screening technologies have changed so dramatically in just the last few years. We're starting to get to the point now where we can actually just do urine tests and blood tests to really detect cancer quite early as opposed to having going in for scans and biopsies and all those sorts of things that prevent people from getting diagnosed early. I mean, people don't like to give you a low-dose radiation tracer and stick you in a scanner just to see maybe if you're sick or not. But to give somebody a cup and tell them to go into the bathroom for a urine sample, that's easy. And we're starting to get the tests to do that. That is going to make more difference on a than the therapies that I spend my time developing. Well, you spend a lot of time developing therapies. And in fact, uh, I might say that Oncolytics Biotech is sort of a one-stop shop for several types of cancer with regard to cure. And that's through your Reolysin Reovirus-based technology. Let's talk about that. Well, one of my colleagues actually said it in a way that I had never heard it said before. He has a very long depth of experience. He has many product approvals under his belt, as it were, in the cancer area. And he said that Reolysin reminds him very much from a developmental perspective of the old line chemotherapies. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because it looks like it works on at least a percentage of everything. Now, you know, it's like if, if you say cancer X or Y or Z, you'll look at me and go, well, yeah, we did a study and it looked like it worked on 5 or 10 or 20 or 40 or 50% of the patient. And that just reminded him very much of, of the way chemo's used to be. Not the side effect profile. I mean, our side effect profile is quite a lot better than that. You know, you do develop a therapy for breast cancer. You develop a therapy for pancreatic cancer. You're not developing a therapy for all cancers. And real license is, I think, unique in that way is that it looks like it's working at least on a percentage of pretty much every cancer we treat. And it's, our job is to be to transform that finally in the end to getting it approved and getting it out so people can treat a lot of cancers. We've had a couple of really, I think, astounding discoveries in the last 18 months or so, where it looks like real lysin actually works with this new class of drugs that everybody's talking about, which are called checkpoint inhibitors, which are responsible for some of the amazing changes that we've seen in responses in patients. And they work with the immune system. And real lysin looks like it's a universal potentiator for that entire drug class. It makes one of the drugs in that drug class work better, at least in animal models. So we're just about to start looking at that in patients, hopefully before the end of this year, but certainly by early next year in January, we should be treating patients with real lysin combined with a check point inhibitor. And that's a major, major developmental step for us. It really does give you a different perspective, honestly, when you take a look at what you're doing every day when you come into work. Well, that's huge. I mean, once you've got FDA approval and once the clinical trials have been completed, how long will it be before real therapy becomes part of the vernacular like chemo is? It's 
a very rapid transformation when there's a new product approved and the uptake, particularly in the United States. I mean, the United States has the most advanced cancer therapy for patients in the world. And part of that is because there's such rapid uptake of new products. So, I mean, if I got a product approval from the FDA, say, on a Friday, your first sales would literally be hitting patients on the following Monday. The medical community in the United States is that good at uptake on new products when they're approved. It's not anywhere like that anywhere else in the world. You know, the American public has the real benefit of being in a healthcare system that adopts that quickly. So, if we're talking, uh, you know, American doctors, that's one story. If we're talking the rest of the world doctors, it takes a bit longer. I mean, it can take in Canada, for example, it can take a couple of years to actually get reimbursement in place. In the UK, it can take 18 months. In Germany, it can take two to three years. In the United States, it's three days. It's quite a benefit to being treated in the U.S. healthcare system, I have to say. I'm feeling that this is very positive news overall. This is a financial program, and as a potential investor in your company, the upside could be incredible with something of that nature. Could it not be? I would think so. I mean, the nice thing about biotech, put it a tiny plug for the entire industry, is that what drives valuation in our companies is typically clinical data in in humans, in people. It's really very much an on-off switch on valuation that's very much correlated with you know clinical outcomes. In 2016, we're expecting to report clinical data on uh, four or five randomized clinical studies and you know where you've got patients on a test and a control arm and the control arm doesn't get your drug and the test arm they do and you can compare that within this study. And that kind of data is are the valuation events that drive very rapid and hopefully very good changes in the valuation of a company like ours, and not just ours, other companies as well. It's one of the the interesting, exciting things about investing in biotechnology companies is there's always this potential. You're not looking at 2 to 3 or 5% growth in a stock. When you show that your product works, you usually see very superior returns, and that's what makes it exciting to invest in the area. Radiation therapy and chemotherapy, while they may be effective in many cases, it's really, really, really hard on the body from what I've seen and from speaking with many cancer patients over the years. How does the realicin therapy uh, affect the body to your knowledge? Well, realicin has a very, I think, well understood side effect profile now from, and that's always something people need to focus on. I mean, people used to focus on acute toxicity, stuff that happened very quickly, and then they found that patients that were being treated for one or two or three years all of a sudden started showing toxicity that's important. So it's important to actually categorize the toxicity of any new agent. Realicin has, I think, a, a very well understood side effect profile now. I mean, we've treated more than a thousand patients, and so you, the, the one in a thousand event is starting to occur, and for some very long duration. Most long duration patient is, is about to start cycle 60, so 60 cycles of therapy that happen every three to four weeks. So you're talking coming up on four years now of monthly realicin therapy, and the side effect profile is very consistent. The patients on usually day two or day three of a five day cycle get a low grade fever, I mean, a degree or a degree and a half. They feel tired, and that's pretty much it. I mean, that's generally what they feel like. Uh, a small percentage get a little low-grade diarrhea and things like that. But there's no lasting effects. Once they come off, they're done. And the very interesting thing is, is that the longer you're on it, the less side effects you have. And so that patient that's about to start cycle 60 actually doesn't have any side effects anymore. You know, she comes in, and she gets her stuff, and she goes home, and she's fine. It's like a trip to the store. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And we watch for side effects actually more early than late, which is completely backwards to radiation and and chemotherapy, which have cumulative toxicities. So there's plenty of clinical trials going on throughout the year, and basically you're waiting for results, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, we're about to start a couple of new studies, which are kind of exciting, but we have active 
active studies ongoing now, I think, in seven different cancers and that we should have data reporting on all next year. That's why we're in business is to treat specific cancers and to be able to report on that to our shareholders primarily. Everybody has instance of cancer either in their family or circle of friends. You can't live this life and not be exposed to it in some capacity. How does one find out about the clinical trials related to Realison and Oncolytics Biotech in North America? Well, I mean, that's a great advantage again to being in the United States is that the clinical trials that are conducted in the United States are all listed on a site called clintrials.gov. You can just go to that site and either search by disease. So if you have pancreatic cancer, you can just type in pancreatic cancer and it will give you all the clinical trials that are being done in the United States on pancreatic cancer. So you can actually, as a patient or a doctor, look for how you can get on those studies. And if you're interested in getting on a, you know, a specific study like real license, type in real license and hit the button and it'll tell you all the different real license studies that are ongoing in the states that are active at this time. It's a great tool and it is the only place in the world that has that tool. And what's that website again? It's CLIN, like C-L-I-N, trials, T-R-I-A-L-S, like all one word, .gov. And if people just Google clintrials.gov, and it'll take you straight to the website. Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me on the program today. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Mlachanovic, the raving capitalist, certified planner, national speaker, and author of Stock Investing for Dummies, Micro-Entrepreneurship for Dummies, The Unofficial Guide to Picking Stocks, Precious Metals Investing for Dummies, and Zero Cost Marketing, which is available on zerocostmarketing.net. Paul, I understand you've got a new book out on Amazon.com. Why don't you tell our audience about it? It's one I'm very excited about because I think it'll be extremely valuable in today's economic and financial chaos and uncertainty. It's called Higher Level Investing for Dummies. I've done the book Stock Investing for Dummies. So in Higher Level Investing for Dummies, I get a chance to talk about ETFs and options and how to make money in bear markets and a lot more. I'm very excited about the project. And it just recently got added to Barnes & Noble and Amazon, I mean, literally within weeks. So it's a very new book out there. You know what I find interesting right now is looking at the price of oil this morning. It's about $35 a barrel. And we've dramatically come down from our highs of over over $100, $125 just several years ago. Has that money trickled back into the economy? It's been a big plus for consumers, as you know. I mean, it hasn't been a horror show going to the, you know, to the gas pumps, etc. in recent months. Where the problem is going to be is potentially the after effect on a lot of portfolios, okay, both stocks and bonds. And the reasoning is, is that the energy boom that's happened both in America, etc., as you mentioned, has been out there. And a lot of those firms have been basically borrowing a lot of money because they were expecting the good times to keep on rolling. How often have we seen that? You start being over-indebted because you think things are going to be doing very well. But as soon as the price of oil went down and revenues came down, you still have the debt to deal with. In many cases, people out there are getting harmed because the energy firms, the stock prices have come down. But in addition, there are a lot of portfolios out there, you know, many mutual funds and with a lot of retirees who have some of those bonds. And so those bonds are going 
going to be problematic as well. Who knows how many of them are going to be heading into the fall? It's a, a great deal of problem from that level. So everything's sort of leveraged with regard to these bonds right now that are wrapped around energy. So we can see some sort of implosion that would it's going to affect investors and institutions. How does that trickle down to mom and pop? Well, first of all, a few things here. I actually had done a, a video right around the beginning of September because I hear a lot of talk about your market crash and recession. I believe that we've entered a period where it's like a death of a thousand cuts. People have seen, as you and I speak today, the Dow is down nearly 300 points. What I've been telling many of my clients and students is that because the levels are so high, in your own personal accounts, on some major positions you may have, especially after a nice run of recent years, that they should start considering putting on like some stop loss orders or trailing stops to help mitigate the downside, which is something that a lot of folks don't do and a lot of even financial advisors don't do. I had a chance to connect with some folks who were at a major brokerage firm, but when I asked them to help one of their clients put on trailing stops and stop loss orders, they pretty much says that they don't do things like that or that it's technically difficult to do. And I was mortified. In other words, there was a great deal of uh, you know bias toward the upside, but a lot of mom and pop shops and a lot of investors out there who've been building up their assets fairly well in the general stock market in recent years are now vulnerable to what could be a very difficult market. It is going to start zigzagging downward. It's already happening. And part of the problem is is that the greatest debt bubble in history on many levels is already starting to show cracks. This is my concern, and this is also part of the reason I'm glad to be on your program, directing some of this to your audience. Well, where can we direct some of our investment dollars if we see uh, gold and silver and energy assets continuing to decline and the stock market is at risk. Where's the safe haven? On a few levels here. For small investors, as I've always mentioned to them, if you're a long-term investor and you're looking at whatever your needs are, maybe retirement, and it's like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now, then the best place to be right now is that, look, there are some great exchange-traded funds where they have a portfolio of up to 50 stocks that are dividend growers. This is one of my favorite areas because I think what's more predictable than stock prices and how they fluctuate is dividends. There are some of my clients and students I was able to help them into ETFs where they raise their dividends year in and year out. So for those investors who have a long-term time perspective, they look at their portfolio and make sure they're only in stocks that are food, beverage, utilities, and the like that are paying dividends. Will some of these things go down? Yes, in the short term. But quality stocks don't keep on zigzagging upwards, so I'm not that worried about those. I'm worried about too many people out there have the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Amazons and uh, a lot of tech stocks out there with grandiose technology but no earnings of any kind. You know, this is a time for them to review their entire portfolio and get out of the companies that are not making money. Secondly, they should be having really accumulating the cash in their accounts. Not because it's a great interest rate, but because there are going to be some buying opportunities with uh, some of these things. Like, keep in mind that when the market crashed in 2008 and 2009, the great stocks of the great companies went down with the bad stocks. But what rebounded on the other side? Bad stocks stayed down. Good stocks rebounded. But at the time, what you were able to do is this. Look, if you have a stock that's generating like a 3% dividend yield right now, and that stock, say, falls by, say, roughly, whatever, you know, 50%. I mean, I'm talking in extreme cases. Here, you might get a chance to lock in a safe dividend that could be six, seven, eight percent on the other side. Forgive me, some of my answers might be long, but your questions are very rich with <laughs> content potential. You know, are there buying opportunities right now with regard to gold and silver? Absolutely, and uh, as you know, one of my other books of all things, I've become a maven of dummies guides. But the, one of them was Precious Metals Investing for 
for Dummies. I talked him into that because I thought it was a very key and important topic. And I think that for a lot of folks out there, as you know, you have this very interesting divergence in the precious metals markets. Gold and silver, the physical keeps on being strong and going up. Meanwhile, the paper versions of it in the COMEX, etc., show it not going up. The uh, gold and silver mining stocks have been struggling. I do think these are, I think, uh, historic buying opportunities without a doubt. When I see all the confluent, if the bottom is not in, it's pretty darn close. And I think the 2016 and 2017 hold strong potential for those. I've been accumulating physical silver recently. Is that one of the safe havens we can look at right now for investment? Yes. I say this in a way that I try to educate folks on, even financial advisors, because as you know, there's many financial advisors who are not huge fans of gold and silver. But what they don't understand and what they're going to find out in the coming months is that Right now, you have an extreme example about counterparty risk. Right now, the junk bond markets are collapsing. And what is debt? When I mention counterparty risk, that sounds like almost like an arcane thing to folks. All it really means really is that if you have your money in a paper asset, the value of that paper asset is tied directly to the promise or performance of the counterparty. If you own stock, that stock is only as good as how well that company is performing. If they go out of business, your stock is worthless. The bond, if you have a bond and the counterparty, In other words, the folks that were lent the money. If they're not making good on the terms of the credit agreement or there's a collapse, chaos, bankruptcy, then that debt is going to go being worthless. Paper assets, the fact that they can go to zero, have been a true risk for years now. But the ugly head of the risk hasn't started showing up until right now. There's going to be eye-popping stuff happening with all this. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes on Wall Street, but don't be surprised if major big-name firms head into crisis. A lot of lesser names have been going into crisis, ranging from Glenn. Encore, the junk bond funds, and so much more. And I think more of that is going to occur. So for the folks within the sound of our voice, every paper asset, including currency and savings, people forget part of the reason why you hold gold and silver is that it doesn't go to zero. The paper assets can, currencies can, bonds can. And now it becomes more evident to everybody, including the skeptics out there who don't understand the real reason behind gold and silver, because it has, again, its own intrinsic value. It doesn't go to zero like many paper assets can and are going through right now. We've seen that happen around the world, certainly, especially in in places like Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, even the pound right now is seeing some uh, downward pressure. The euro has not held the value it has a few years ago, but the dollar seems to have been very, very resilient. And at least on the surface, we haven't seen any signs of its vulnerability, although, as you stated, pretty much everything's in play. So why should anyone believe that we're at risk with regard to our own currency? Well, the dollar, as you know, it's the uh, best looking house on an ugly block, as you've probably heard often said. The thing is that being a reserve status currency gives it some privileges. There's trillions of dollars in play across the globe, and a lot of people see the United States as, in spite of all the bad things going on with our economy and terrorism and recession, that it's still a strong relative economy to everything else. So the U.S. dollar is considered strong from that perspective. But I think that is going to end up changing as well. Among the rumblings that have occurred recently is about China's currency heading into potentially reserve status, and that could happen. I think it was official that probably by September of 2016, you know, it could be considered a world reserve currency. And if that's the case, that's just more competition. In other words, the dollar has been strong because it had a special place for the longest time. If you're on the top deck of a ship that's been slowly sinking, a lot of the smaller currencies are going to get wiped out, ranging from currencies in the Ukraine to Venezuela and so many other ones. But at some point, if more and more currencies are on top, then 
the special advantages that the dollar has, has had, that's going to start to diminish. So you might start seeing the U.S. dollar heading into a bear market, if it hasn't already, but certainly by, by 2016. And that's going to coincide with the ascendancy or the next leg of the precious metals bull market after a excruciatingly painful bear market of the last four years. So the effects of the yuan being recognized as a bellwether currency have not taken place yet. And when everyone starts talking about it, we haven't really seen the effects of the yuan becoming a recognized reserve currency by the IMF yet. We haven't seen that happen. It hasn't fully started yet, but the wheels are already turning in that direction. So I think a lot of people, especially on Wall Street, you start seeing a slow move by people who never bought gold and silver before slowly start to buy it now. Because then they start to see what's happening on the wall. People forget that the most common collapse in world history is a currency collapse. Thousands of those have occurred. Whenever a government sees that it can print up a currency, it's almost like making like money out of thin air. We call it money, but it's it's a currency. It's, it's a unit of exchange. But when you start to overprint them, you start having dramatic effects. Many people thought for sure that inflation would come. I was certainly one of them. When it was going to start, I don't know, because for a currency to start generating inflation, which means what? You print up so many units of it, and it's chasing the finite basket of the goods and services, that there's going to be inflation. You've had all these dollars, the trillions being printed up heading into the stock market. So all it really did was inflate the stock market. Now what? So many currencies being produced across the globe to try to mitigate all the financial difficulties, they forget that that doesn't create soundness. It just creates weakness in the currencies and it shows up in inflation in those places. Venezuela, they're having inflation because the money they're printing up doesn't go in any assets because those have been pretty much decimated. So the money goes into products and services. So it does culminate there. Inflation happens not only by how many dollars or units of currency you produce, but also where are those dollars heading? Don't be surprised if the United States, like 3, 6, 9, 12 months from now or 18 months from now, they start talking about issuing money from the central bank to the residents in the United States. That's already been talked in some parts of Europe. In other words, to try to help them mitigate it. But if you flood it there, the citizens will think it's a nice windfall. But all it's going to mean is going to be that the inflation is going to come to the consumer level. And that's going to be problematic. And that'll be, again, another boost to finite assets such as gold, silver, and other hard assets. So we could see something pretty revolutionary as far as prices are concerned for precious metals and resource stock. Let's say I'm going to throw this number out 2017. I throw out numbers like that myself. You and I might be off six months either way, but the point is, I think that this overproduction, sooner or later, is going to hit the consumer levels. I'd rather be a year too early than a day too late when it comes to my planning and making sure I have inflation hedges that are out there. Right now, gold and silver, I told you, they're a hedge against counterparty risk, which they've been for thousands of years. But in terms of geopolitical chaos and monetary crises, what other places can you turn to except for making sure you have a lot of other hard assets, whether it's a, that hard asset is real estate or collectibles or cans of soup you know, in the basement. All of these things are going to be mattering more because they're going to appreciate in terms of all the unlimited units of currency they're producing. Hard assets and supplies and things, those are going to become very valuable in the coming years. Let's talk about the bear in the room, the Russian bear. Are we headed towards World War Three? We're going to have brushes there, without a doubt. I think that, see, the thing is this, if you're a world power and you act with some confidence and you back that up, like America used to do, then people back off. That is actually even a way to mitigate or to avoid military conflicts. If people know that you're resolute in what you're going to do and you have the firepower, both economic and military, to back it up, that is actually something that helps to 
avoid conflicts. But when the world sees us as being very weak, tenuous speeches, all bark but no bite, and we're watching that we have either failed or questionable enterprises going bad, like why we didn't wipe out ISIS in recent years, I don't know. But when people see these kind of things on and on, what they say is, well, the United States is a paper tiger. Weakness doesn't project an air of diplomacy to the world. It invites conflict. Russia is getting more aggressive in many respects. Right now, they're having skirmishes with Turkey. Turkey is, of course, a NATO member. I doubt if the United States is going to be directly involved in a conflict in the next 3, 6, 9, 12 months, but we're inviting conflict in our direction. That same year you mentioned could easily be a brush up where the United States could be putting a military in play against the interests of a Russia and a China. And I think this is a very problematic thing unless uh, we are able to then project to the world that we're stronger and that Hey, don't screw with us, basically. What's coming up in the future, and how can I join you? One of my biggest projects, I think, for 2016, and I'm so grateful you mentioned it, is that, first of all, you know, I lay by myself the raving capitalist, etc. Among the things I tell people to do is that, you know, the two-pronged approach to wealth building. Prong number one is having your money work for you, like passive wealth building. You mentioned gold and silver. I mentioned dividend-paying stocks tied to human need, having your money work for you. Some of my clients actually have been speculators, and they've been buying inverse ETFs and buying put options on some of the very things. So they've been making money in this. So there's lots of ways that people can be able to make money. I'm going to be doing programs during the first half of 2016 about how people can make money with all of these things based on what I shared in the book. But I said the first prong was passive wealth building. But the second prong is active wealth building. I think everybody within the sound of my voice should start a part-time home business. I consider that part of a diversification. Whenever your financial advisors talk, they always talk about being diversified among their assets. Cash, stocks, bonds, metals, real estate, and that's fine. But among the risks in today's economy is that not enough people are diversified with their active wealth building portfolio. What does that mean? Well, the most common thing that people do, well, what do they do to make money actively? They have a job, right? You know, some of them out there had a full-time job, now they have a part-time job because there's lots of problems going on with small businesses because of Obamacare and half a dozen other issues. And for me, my second specialty over the last 25 years or quarter century has been helping people launch a home-based business. People forget, you know, like Ellis, as an example, do you know when you have your own home-based business, you can have your own 401k plan? I didn't know no, that. A lot of people don't know that. In other words, you can be able to invest and be able to build it up through your own home-based business. Like, for example, a home-based business, you know you can legitimately be able to write off literally thousands of dollars in expenses from home, being able to turn personal expenses into home office expenses, which could save you thousands in terms of, of taxes. Also, with a home-based business, you can have your own health savings account. Like, for example, most people know you can have an IRA, like a traditional IRA where you could put in, like, whatever, four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000. But when you have a home-based business, you can be able to, based on the limitations as a percentage of your home business income, but you can be able to set aside up to $53,000 in your own self-employed IRA, which is a different animal altogether. So, Things like this add for the common person out there a new dimension of wealth building that they didn't have before. So in spite of it being a recession and a bear market, for me, helping people generate active income is important because, look, you've seen some of the same statistics I have, Ellis. Millions are unemployed. Millions are underemployed. Millions are worried about their retirement. Millions are worried about losing their jobs. A lot of the programs I'm going to be launching in January, February, March is like, imagine doing business where you're going to generate passive income. The money's going to come in, regardless of whether you have investments or not. So the more they're self-sufficient, the better off they're going to be. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Merry Christmas to you and everybody else. you got to continue your 
great works, Ellis, because I love your program. I've been speaking with the raving capitalist, Paul Majenovic. His website is ravingcapitalist.com. Subscribe free to the Prosperity Alert and get free wealth-building reports. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Michael Nelson, the Vice President of Operations for Nobilis Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASC, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for health care delivery. Michael, give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind. A little bit of a traditional healthcare operation. Got a degree in operating health management TCU up in Fort Worth. I came to grad school to Houston. I got an MBA and MHA focused in healthcare administration. Did a fellowship in the medical center at Harris Health. Had a chance to kind of see big, huge, multi-billion dollar health system. And from a ground up standpoint, individual facilities, ran group practices, interventional cardiology practices for a little bit. I guess this past year, moved over to Nobles and have oversight for our operations and oversight for our facilities across our markets. It seems like you have a fairly broad scope of responsibilities. With alone just your experience in the construction of medical facilities, your presence is integral in Nobilis's future expansion aspirations. Actually, it's kind of nice to have a little bit of background here and there all over the place. We just started at 501A, that is a not-for-profit healthcare organization focused on physicians. A lot of the large major health systems have moved to that model, becoming more of an integrated health system, allowing us to actually employ physicians, bringing them into that model. Group practice background is definitely helpful. That's going to allow us to kind of expand and, and have another option for a lot of our physicians and surgeons out there. Construction-wise, I had a chance to be part of about a $350 million capital construction program at previous health system at Harris Health. I had a little bit of construction, actually started how since I was very young, uh, kind of the construction industry came from that background with family and actually where I get interested in healthcare. When you go into a hospital with a general contractor and just kind of see how it's set up, if you can figure out how to run one of these things, you can kind of do anything. It is one of the most wonderful places to be. It's the highest cognitive industry and everyone has their place to go, knows what to do. We provide excellent, excellent patient care. So having a look at that background is pretty important from patient flow standpoint, looking at growth opportunities, which we have been pretty significant here in the last year since I've been there. Went from about a $31 million revenue to about 83 this past year, 2014, and we're projecting about 147% increase this year to around $205 million of revenue. So rapid, rapid growth and need a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds to help move that forward. Can we look forward to seeing more neighborhood-oriented ASCs? We are really becoming more of an integrated health system. We have focused on looking for hospital opportunities. We do have the ASCs that serve our different markets. With the integration of our APHIS group, which we just acquired, gives us a little more visibility into about seven states now where we have relationships and or owner-operate facilities. And then we are focusing on a lot of ancillaries. Historically, we've been focused strictly on outpatient centers and outpatient surgery. Now we have an opportunity through our direct consumer program, marketing program, patients always have a place to go now, especially in Houston where we just had interest in the hospital in Bel Air. That patient that may have back pain can come in and see our pain doctor, but it's a place that they need to have inpatient surgery or inpatient care. We have a place for them to go now. That's really the focus. We are looking to expand our market. We are looking to expand types of services that we provide. And again, becoming that a little more of that integrated health system focused on ancillary services. Past year, we've got an arrangement where we have urgent care centers 
centers and MRI centers up in the Willowbrook area that help integrate with our health system. We want to have a place to call home for our patients. What I've learned from interviewing your management team is that marketing is a strategic component of your growth strategy at Nobilis. It really is a phenomenal support. That is truly our solid competitive advantage in our market. With ACES acquisition, with Chris Lloyd and team coming on board, it's taken our programs to a new level. It's reduced our cost per acquisition for patients, and it's allowed us to reach a huge population. We've got a significant percentage of those patients that are coming into our facilities from out of state. And so we're able to really kind of go national with this program. From an operations standpoint, it's great support because a lot of our doctors that may not have huge volumes, we can definitely help source some of those patients into our health system. It's great for our programs to help keep volume in, and we're able to reach out to that patient directly. And again, like I said, going out to 11 different markets in seven states now, it's been a huge, huge opportunity for growth for us, and it's allowed us to focus on a lot of those high-margin cases and a lot of the high-margin population to bring it to our system with healthy growth opportunities. So certainly great program, great for the community, great for our markets, and great for the health systems overall. And like I said, I think that's really what sets us apart from the other health systems out there. We've got a world-class marketing company, a world-class marketing team that can reach out and identify a lot of the needs in the community. I've been speaking with Michael Nelson, Vice President of Operations for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.